afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. Oh, that's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, twins, oceans, and allergies. In addition, we'll be joined by Joshua and Ann Lee Gilder, who will talk about Tycho Bray, Johann Kepler, and a murder mystery. Also, we'll find out how much water there is in a human body. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grokks. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. How about you, Charles? Again, science is in the air. So what more can you do? <laughs> wow. So if Berkeley Rocks was a soda, would it be regular or diet? It would be heavily caffeinated, I think. <laughs> okay, like the Jolt Cola, huh? <laughs> right. Well, you know, in the old days, I think Coke used actually cocaine. So <laughs> I'm hoping illicit pharmaceuticals somehow would be involved. But <laughs> maybe Viagra. The Viagra-flavored <laughs> cola. <laughs> I mean, blue too, right? <laughs> well, it'd be very large. <laughs> <laughs> Tall, skinny can, I think. <laughs> yes, drink rock cola. So speaking of soda, it turns out the ocean could one day be fizzing just like a soda. Because it'd be heavily carbonated? Indeed, that's very possible. Okay. So it turns out all the CO2 that we're putting in the air is actually affecting the ocean. And as it absorbs more CO2, it produces carbonic acid when it combines with water. And so in fact, the surface seawater has declined from a pH of 8.3 to 8.2 in the past 200 years. So it's uh, becoming more acidic. Yeah, so the lower the pH, the more acidic it is. And actually that represents about a 30% increase in in hydrogen uh, ion concentration. And this, they think, is all due to the carbon dioxide uh, becoming carbonic acid, huh? Right. Hmm. So we can actually predict what the change in pH is with respect to the equilibrium of the CO2. And if current trends continue by 2100, the pH could fall an additional 0.5 units. And that's actually close to, say, about 300% increase in hydrogen ion content because the pH scale is logarithmic, of right, course. Right, As all good scales should be. <laughs> What is it with linear scales? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This could be a little bit worrisome because having an acidic environment could start dissolving uh, the shells of the marine organisms and uh, pretty soon you can have a naked clams and stuff right. running around. Uh, they need their shells. <laughs> Although I'm waiting for the next issue of Play Clam. <laughs> So uh, this was an interesting projection. It was reported in the recent publication of the UK's Royal Society. Okay, Frank, so whatever happened to your twin? I killed him. I like to be original, you know. <laughs> okay. Was he the evil twin? Well, you know, enough of my pathological habits. <laughs> Well, I guess you're the one that killed him, so you must be the evil twin, right? So, <laughs> turns out, actually, that identical twins may have actually less in common than they think. Whoa. So is it a genetic thing or environmental or what? Well, apparently it's the environment's effects on the genes. Uh-huh. So it turns out that as twins age and are exposed to different environmental conditions, mm -hmm. the expression of their genes actually changes. So uh, somehow their activities influence their genetic expression? Yeah. It's just an example of how the environment influences the genes. So how are they being altered, their expression? Uh, is it like what they eat? chemicals or stress are exposed to, this changes how the DNAs are modified. Hmm. And there's a particular process called uh, methylation uh -huh. that takes place on DNAs, changes how genes are expressed. Hmm. So that means if I take my twin's kidney, it may not actually work in me anymore, huh? <laughs> oh. I think you'd be willing to take the chance. Oh, yeah, of course. Something about the island or something yeah. where they take clones and uh, take out their organs. Right. That was, uh, that's <laughs> always a good film. I'm trying to cultivate my own organ bank somewhere. <laughs> 
So anyway, fascinating results. It just shows that, uh, again, how genes and environment are very intimately linked. And it was research done by Mario Fraga of the Spanish National Cancer Center in Madrid and was published in our favorite journal, The Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Oh, penis. So, Charles, do you ever feel like you're under attack? Constantly. It's part of my paranoia. <laughs> well, it turns out science is under attack here in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that the current administration doesn't believe in science at all. So, <laughs> No, they believe in some sentient entities <laughs> which uh, control our destiny. Well, I believe in the Green Lantern, so it's all the same thing. <laughs> So it turns out in Kansas, which I guess is part of the Middle West, uh-huh. there's an ongoing battle between a creationist and evolutionist, and the education board in Kansas wants to uh, institute a redefinition of science to something that not only finds natural explanation for things, but adequate <laughs> explanations. Okay. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> uh, me neither, but that means that it can include non-natural or supernatural explanations for natural phenomena. I see. So as long as somebody believes that there's saying it might as well be science. Uh, I guess so. <laughs> and this is all part of the so-called uh, intelligent design movement that's right. been gaining some traction with these conservatives. Well, uh, this is a good thing because I'm trying to get my grant for the uh, tooth fairy study to be funded, but <laughs> oh, yeah. it's countering some resistance. I-, I need some new teeth. <laughs> this is ongoing issue, but it's taken a national spotlight since turns out in the past year alone, there have been 39 uh, creationist incidents where uh, legislative efforts to implement similar policies around the country. Okay. Hmm. So uh, I guess if you're a little bit concern, you can find this nice article in a recent edition of New Scientist. Okay, and finally, Frank, you're getting sleepy. I'm always sleepy. <laughs> well, wake up, because now you can reduce your allergies by hypnotizing yourself. Chant something and suddenly all my allergies go away. <laughs> I don't know, what would you be chanting? 56 sounds prime rib. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're on the right track, because apparently Wolf Langwitz of the University Hospital in Basel, Switzerland, had done a study where he took a group of volunteers and asked them to imagine scenes that were very unallergenic, you know, uh-huh. so like a snow-capped mountain or something like, such as that. And he had them do this for two years, and he showed that after two years of imagining these uh, scenes, that when they were tested against allergens, their level of congestion was remarkably reduced. Well, at least he suggests that self-hypnosis can actually help reduce your allergen responses. Why don't it matter? <laughs> Maybe it can also change your DNA. I'm, I'm hoping my methylation level will go down. Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to become a white person? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm trying to become like a man of all cultures uh-huh. and, and failing miserably, I guess. <laughs> so this was very fascinating work. It was work that was reported in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Joshua and Anne-Lee Gilder will join us to talk about Tycho Bray, Johann Kepler, and an ancient murder mystery. So stay tuned. Rocks here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, our view of the solar system consisting of planets in wonderfully elliptical orbits is so much a part of daily thinking that we often neglect its profound import. But this discovery may never have happened had two great scientists, Tycho Bray and Johann Kepler, never met, and more importantly, had Bra not died. But some mysteries surround Bra's death, and one of the chief suspects is in fact none other than Johann Kepler. 
Well, joins today to tell us about this fascinating story is Joshua and Anne Lee Gilder. They are the authors of Heavenly Intrigue, Johann Kepler, Tycho Bray, and The Murder Behind One of History's Greatest Scientific Discoveries, which is now available in paperback. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Gilder, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks. It's great to be here. Great to be here. Well, it's certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and both are in a very fascinating look at one of the seminal scientific discoveries. Curious if you could tell us first a little bit about what was the scientific discovery that Kepler and Brahm contributed to? Well, Kepler discovered the three laws of planetary motion, and as you said, he was the first one to understand that planetary orbits were elliptical. That, in turn, really led to Newton's understanding of gravitation. So it was really the beginning of modern physics. And Kepler would not have been able to make that discovery if it hadn't been for Brahe's very, very fine calculations, which he had spent a lifetime, fine observations, which he had spent a lifetime putting together. Everybody believed, universally believed, that the orbits of the planets were circular. That was basically it was Aristotle's view of the elements in the heaven. There were the four elements of the earth, and the earth was a place of decay and corruption. But the heavens were perfect, and so everything about them had to be perfect, and the circle was the perfect shape. So by that reasoning, planetary orbits had to be circular. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the relative contributions of both Kepler and Brahe to this discovery. Well, Brahe is fascinating. He was a generation older than Kepler. He was born in Denmark to the highest of high nobility and really broke with his class in a sense to become an astronomer. I mean, he should have been a courtier or a soldier. I mean, those are the two professions that people of his class went into, but he was just fascinated with astronomy. Because of his very close connection with the king, he ended up being put up on this island and given what turns out to have been about 1% of the royal treasury through over a period of about 30 years to pursue this passion. At that time, astronomy and astrology were really considered the same discipline. And his great frustration was that the two tables that then existed, basically the Ptolemaic tables and the Prutenic tables based on Copernicus, were so far off in their calculations and their predictions of where the planets would be that it just rendered, he felt it rendered the whole science of astrology meaningless. Mm. So he, it was really his life's goal to make accurate observations of the planets in the beginning at the very least so that he could then make astrological predictions with some confidence. As things moved on, he became less and less interested in astrology, although he always believed in it in theory. His great contribution was really that he had an unparalleled treasure of observations. It was a true treasure. Nobody had this amount of data ever assembled before. What sort of person was Bra? I mean, this was sort of, as you mentioned, unusual for Bra to actually go into this field. How was he as a person and sort of well-respected around the courts and such? Oh, he was highly respected. He was one of the most famous men in Europe. It was said to go to, to Denmark and not see Brahe was like going to Rome and not visiting the Pope. He was famous throughout Europe. He was certainly the most famous astronomer. He was kind of a swashbuckling type. He lost half of his nose in a duel when he was young, and from then on wore this metal prosthesis, this really gold and silver prosthesis on the bridge of his nose to cover the gaping hole there. He did what he wanted to do. He not only went into astronomy when his family thought that that was really beneath his rank, he married a, basically a peasant girl, which scandalized everyone. And he married her for love and was absolutely loyal to her for, throughout his life. Brian was the kind of person, he was completely self-contained, 
I think what's interesting is what we found when we really looked into it and went back to the original resources. He's portrayed in most histories as arrogant, certainly very self-assured, but he turns out to have been quite a kindly and forgiving man. He was the kind of guy you would like to hang out with and enjoy a good beer, and <laughs> he had always a good story. And how does this compare with Kepler, then? Well, they could hardly be more different. Mm. Kepler was born into a family that was poor. He was raised by a family, his parents and his grandparents, what we would call today highly abusive. There was physical abuse, there was psychological abuse. Kepler was very sick his whole life. And if you look at his correspondence, there is rarely a letter where he does not refer to one of his sicknesses. Many letters tell that he fears he might die. He says about himself that he avoids company. He didn't like wine. He wrote a um, self-analysis as well, which is a true window into his personality. The, the crucial thing is that Brahe was this amazing extrovert who just lived life large. Kepler was a troubled genius, to say the least, and extremely introverted. Well, Kepler's self-analysis is really a window into his dark soul, one might say. This self-analysis is basically the analysis of his personality based on a nativity chart, which is the constellation of the planets at the moment of his birth. This was not something unusual at the time. A lot of people did it, and he did it for himself. And in this very long document, Kepler made several stunning revelations. For example, admits his, quote, lust for pretending, for deceiving, for lying. He talked at length about that he was filled with an unbelievable love of glory. At some point he says, neither food, nor clothing, nor grief, nor joy are a greater concern to him than men's opinion of him, which he wants nothing but great. Hmm. On the other hand, there is Kepler's rage. That is something that is very often overlooked. And again, I, it's very important that these are Kepler's own words about himself. This is not any kind of idea we have based on what he might have thought about himself. He say, he's very clear about what he thinks about himself. Mm. He describes his rage as a constant, penetrating, and persisting force. He says that this force drives him to contradicting, to assailing others, to attacking all authorities. And he says there is this rage and eagerness for trickery, watchfulness, spontaneous and sudden assault. The bottom line of this self-analysis is that Kepler was a truly tormented man who had a very dark soul that had a lust for pretending and an unbelievable love for glory and that was tormented by rage. Yeah, I think the important thing is about the self-analysis is that this wasn't self-flagellation. You see all of these qualities manifest in his life. For instance, the rage. He goes through a chronicle of all the enemies he made during his school years. And when you add it up, it turns out that he made enemies of almost everybody in his class. So he was somebody who was tormented. He goes on for pages. This is the most amazing part about his, and Lee mentioned it, his love of deception. And what irks him is that his deceptions are not as successful as he would like them to be. And he's, ter he's terribly envious of those people who can deceive God and deceive the world successfully, whereas he can't. At no point in these pages and pages of talking about his lust for deception does he ever mention, but it would be wrong. And this is even more striking when you realize that he wrote this after basically graduating from the seminary. He was training to become a Lutheran priest. Yeah. And at no point is there any kind of glimmer of morality or sort of some baseline morality of what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's evil. Hmm. 
Well, it sounds like there can be two more different men. I think we should move into how these two met and how their relationship proceeded from there. Well, Kepler had written his own model of the universe, which he called the cosmic mystery. Hmm. It was an intuitive model rather than based off observations. And he had, had sent it to Brahe, asking Brahe for his opinion. And that was two and a half years before Brahe died. No, that was actually longer. It took a long time until Brahe responded. Brahe receives Kepler's model, and he writes back, basically saying, look, I see how bright you are. I admire your zeal. However, I don't think that this holds water, since all this is intuitive, mm. and what you really need to validate your model are observations, mm -hmm. are my observations. Mm -hmm. And Kepler receives this letter, and he was furious. And he wrote then to a friend of him saying, I need this observation. And he said about Brahe's observations in this letter to a friend, I think that's about Tycho, the abounding rich, which like most rich people he does not rightly use. And this is important now. Therefore, great effort has to be given that we may wrest his riches away from him. Hmm. Two and a half years before Brahe dies, he says very clearly, I will do anything it takes to get these data. Hmm. And there was another quote in that letter which is very striking since Tycho tried to discourage him from his idea about the universe. Kepler writes, I rather think about striking Tycho himself with his own sword. Hmm. What this means is that two and a half years before Brahe was killed, Kepler had already made up his mind. He made very clear, I want these observations. It certainly expresses the amount of fury and anger Kepler felt from the onset toward Brahe for not giving the cosmic mystery the credit Kepler thought it deserved. Hmm. Then Kepler admits in several letters that the only reason why he accepted the job as Brahe's assistant was actually to prove his cosmic mystery and to advance the current project of the harmony of the world. So Kepler wanted this job for his own work and he wanted the data. But Brahe wasn't forthcoming with the data. No, he wasn't. He was about to publish his data and no scientist in the world would give his life's work to his assistant mm -hmm. a year or two prior publication. He did share a few data with Kepler whenever Kepler needed some, but he would never leave them with him. He would give him parts and take him away, and Kepler complained that it drove him insane that he didn't have enough time to promote his own work. Brahe hired Kepler as an assistant to basically crunch the numbers. Brahe had all these observations. He wanted to fit them into his planetary model. He needed somebody to do a lot of calculations. It was very tedious. This was before calculus, even. That's how Brahe looked at Kepler, as a smart mathematician who could help him with his calculations. So he gave him what he needed for those specific calculations, but not enough for Kepler to use to prove his alternative model. Both of these models were incorrect, by the way, of the universe and the planetary motion. And I think it's very important what a lot of people forget, that at that time, when they worked together, Johannes Kepler was a nobody. Without Brahe's data and the ensuing revelations he had, he would have remained a footnote, if anything at all. Hmm. I think a lot of people forget that Kepler at the time was really a nobody. Well, it certainly sounds like he had motive, at least, for Brahe's death, but the conventional story that goes around about Tycho Brahe is that he died from an infection of the bladder. Where's the evidence for him being murdered? Right. Well, there's a lot of evidence. The place that started with the mercury poisoning, in the 90s, there were two separate tests done on Tycho Brahe's hair. 
which show conclusively that he received very high doses of mercury two times before he died and can pretty much figure out when those doses just occurred. The first one, it's within a sort of week time frame. It would be about when he attended this party and then fell ill. And the second one, because it's a PIXA analysis, it actually draws in a picture of this sample element by element. You can tell that like Brahe then ingested a second dose of mercury just the night before he died. So you have this mercury poisoning. And this actually fits with the symptomology, which was recorded in detail at the time, which is that he fell sick and couldn't urinate and had a high fever. All of this comports with mercury poisoning. The alternative theory is that he had, for some reason, probably an enlarged prostate. He had a blocked bladder. Well, if you have a blocked bladder and you can't urinate, your bladder is going to fill up. It's going to be quite large. And they had a lot of experience with this, and they had a lot of experience piercing them Mm -hmm. and relieving that problem. And there's absolutely no mention of one of any swelling or of any effort made to actually let the fluid out. Now, with mercury poisoning, what you get is non-oligaric breakdown of the kidney so that water is not passed from the kidney to the bladder, which fits exactly with mercury poisoning and fits exactly with his symptoms. It's the only thing that does. I think to kind of sum this up again, after we looked into the story of Tycho's Brahe's death, seeing on the one hand the description of the symptoms, seeing on the other hand the new revelations that Tycho Brahe had been poisoned by mercury, was very clear that this was the cause of death. And at the time, 400 years ago, nobody knew that he actually had mercury in his blood. Brahe did have enemies back in Denmark, and the feud was at this point many years old. You have to really stretch things to look beyond Kepler. Most people haven't looked at other suspects, but the suggested is that the mercury poisoning might have been accidental. Mm. This is an issue that we took very seriously, because that's what a lot of people said. He said, Brahe is also a lifelong alchemist. So people assumed, well, these alchemists didn't know what they were doing. They'd mix a few things in a jug, take a swig, and see what effect it had, right? And so they were poisoning themselves with mercury all the time. In fact, their understanding, and particularly Brahe's understanding of mercury, was extremely sophisticated. They didn't know the periodic table of the elements, but he knew which mercury compounds were extremely poisonous and which weren't. So we went back. This book is the first time that Brahe's Mercury recipe, and it has never been translated before. And it, we did, down to the point with the, where we could figure reaction by reaction what was going on in this process. Hmm. And what was going on is he was taking this elemental mercury and turning it into what was a fairly benign mercury sulfate at the end. Hmm. So benign that it was part of the pharmacopoeia in many European countries up until the 20th century. You'd have to take massive, massive doses of it to have any effect whatsoever. But interestingly, one of the intermediate products in the production of this drug was mercury chloride, which is one of the worst poisons you can imagine. Mm. And that's because it's a salt and it's absorbed immediately into the system. Mm. Brings the mercury immediately into your system and mercury just kills cells. So mercury chloride is extremely, extremely hazardous. Brahe was absolutely aware of this. In fact, his good friend had done a controlled experiment feeding mercury chloride to dogs and then feeding them clay as an antidote to see if they would live. But they knew all about mercury chloride. He knew what he was dealing with. 
What's interesting is there was the mercury chloride sitting in Brahe's laboratory available to anyone who had access to his laboratory and to his household to use as a poison. And the important thing is that dealing with a rather sophisticated murder weapon here, Mm -hmm. it was not arsenic what was used at the time or other things, it was mercury chloride. Now, the question that immediately comes to mind is, how would Kepler know about this? That uh, result of our research, it turns out that Kepler was not only very interested in alchemy, but he looked over Brahe's shoulder and watched very carefully what Brahe did in his lab. That is confirmed by a German scientist who wrote a paper about this and about Kepler's own writing. So Kepler actually not only had the motive, but he had the means and the access Hmm. to a very sophisticated murder weapon. And that in itself excludes a lot of other subjects because they would not have known what is going on in that lab. Right. He had the knowledge, which is what Anneli was saying. I mean, the godfather of one of his children was also an alchemist. There's a lot of correspondence between Kepler on issues of alchemy with various alchemists. He was extremely interested in this whole subject. And the godfather, one of his once recommended to his old college as an expert in poisons. And this goes back to before he even met Brahe. He had the knowledge and he had the means and he had the opportunity. I guess what, what, what is important, once we figured out how Brahe died, we saw that this was a sophisticated murder weapon. The house, Brahe's household at that point was sparsely populated. A lot of people had left. And from these few people that had left and that actually had access to Brahe, There was basically only one who had the knowledge Hmm. about alchemy. Hmm. Fingers do seem to point in one general direction. So what was the aftermath of Bra's death and uh, what became of Kepler? Oh, well, Brahe died. Brahe had been the imperial mathematician to King Rudolf II, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, who was descending into madness at the time. Hmm. All of Brahe's assistants had left him at that point. Kepler was the only one left, so he was made imperial mathematician and put in charge of putting together a new planetary tables called the Rudolphine Tables, based on Brahe's observations. And he stole the observations. And he stole the observations. He wasn't given them. It's, mm. He made that's sort of fudged in the history books, but Kepler writes very clearly that he, seen the family in distress and otherwise occupied, he simply put all the observation books in his luggage and left the house. Mm. I mean, he just stole mm. them. Mm. But what did he do with them? He discovered the three laws of planetary motion. Mm-hmm. It is a fascinating tale. I'm curious, how did both of you become interested in this story? Well, we, our original idea was really just to write a narrative history around these two fascinating characters because their collaboration, in fact, had a tremendous impact on modern science. We knew that they were interesting characters, but little did we know what actually happened. It was never our intention to make Kepler the main suspect in a murder case. Mm. That really grew during the process of our intense research, and we figured out two things. Brahe was killed, and we saw all of a sudden, because of the translations that a translator had done for us, this very dark side of Johannes Kepler, a story never been told, and then we basically did a murder investigation Mm. looking at motive, means, and opportunities and everything pointed to Johannes Kepler. I think what I would like to say at the end is, do we know for sure that Kepler is the murderer? I think 400 years after the fact, no one will ever know for sure, since there is no confession, there is no DNA, there is no photo, there is no witness. But after all our intense research, we are certain enough to put Kepler on the bench as the main suspect in what turns out to be an historical murder case. 
and the jury is out, and the jury is the reader. <laughs> I certainly hope the reader will uh, pick up the book. We Kepler, hope. Mr. and Mrs. Gilder, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on Brooke and Grox and talking about this uh, fascinating case. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. And you were just listening to Joshua and Anne-Lee Gilder talking about Tycho Bray, Yalhan Kepler, and their book, Heavenly Intrigue. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, we're back from the break, and Joshua and Anne Lee Gilder, author of Heavenly Intrigue, Johann Kepler, Tycho Bray, and the Murder Behind One of History's Greatest Scientific Discoveries, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue, and today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Heavenly Bodies. So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know what type of heavenly body do they most represent? So, Mr. Mr. Gilder, are you ready to play a game with the Grokatron 5000? We will do our best. <laughs> okay, very good. Here we go. Person number one, what type of heavenly body? The King of Pop, Michael Jackson. I don't know, the moon, he goes through so many different phases and changes. <laughs> different all the time. Yeah, I guess you never really know what, uh, what phase you'll get with Michael Jackson there. <laughs> number two, the great astrophysicist, Carl Sagan. Well, all I can think of is the billions and billions <laughs> of galaxies out there. I, th- I think his catchphrase has come back to haunt him. <laughs> yeah. Number three, Oprah Winfrey. That would be Venus. Venus, because for many people, she embodies the power of womanhood. Mm. Okay, number four, Microsoft uh, head honcho Bill Gates. Well, having just having recently switched from Apple to PCs, we have entered a whole new world of hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so our feeling about Bill Gates, he might be the sun around which we're all like forced to orbit, but I think of him more as like some dark force like outside Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> the god of the underworld. I don't know. You know? <laughs> I mean, cannot tell you how many times in the last few months that our Apple never crashed. This machine just seems to crash every day. Cough and it picks up a virus. <laughs> So maybe like the mysterious dark matter that pervades Yeah, that's it. It's mysterious dark matter. That's it. Okay. All right. And number five, finally, President of the United States, George W. Bush. Oh, Mars, the god of war. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Certainly could not be anything but. but, (laughs) Mr. and Mrs. Gilder, (laughs) I do want to thank you very much for sticking around to play our game, the Grokatron 5000. And, of course, talking about your book, Heavenly Intrigue. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. And now he asked, Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. How much water is in the human body? Or in the baby, it is between 75 and 80% water. In the regular healthy adult, it's about 60 to 65% water. And for many elderly people, it's about 5% lower because elderly people start to lose their sense of thirst. And that's how much water is in the human body. Yeah, thank you very much, that's Tokyo Kids. Okay. Now ask the governor of this is question of the week. Welcome to the guys state of California, where we are properly pumped up. You see all the things that are properly pumped up. Craziest things is the, the orbits of the planets. But Kepler, he was even greater, because he could tell these orbits of the planets were something strange, which is still also planetary motion. But if you know the answer, think you know the answer, email us at groxy.mail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might be. Pump you up. 
And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music